Hello there again, food enthusiasts. My name is Chris Rachkowski, your host today for the Future Foodcast, where we talk with thought leaders in today's food industry and discuss the trends and technologies that will shape the future of food. Today, I'm really excited to be speaking with Blair Hislop, CEO of Mrs. Dunster's, which is a North Atlantic baking company. Welcome to the program today, Blair. Thanks for having me, Chris. Excellent. Um, you know, Blair, you have, uh, I think, a long and interesting background in the space. But before we kind of get into your, your company and what it does and some of the our talking points around that and sustainability and technology, et cetera, maybe could you give the audience a quick introduction to your background and what really brought you into um, leading Mrs. Dunster's? Certainly. So, you know, I've been in the food business for 30 years. Uh, I started my career in, in the bakery business, direct-to-store uh, delivery, fresh bakery, uh, in a small regional company that was part of a national sort of company in, in Atlanta, Canada, and the east coast of Canada some 30 years ago. And then I, you know, went on to work for, you know, mostly family-owned businesses, Moosehead Beer and uh, and McCain Foods uh, around the world. I helped develop emerging markets for McCain, uh, one of the, the largest French fry companies in the world, um, in the Middle East and Southeast Asia and Latin America and the Caribbean. And, and uh, and then uh, you know and worked in other categories as well in peanut butter and tea and different things I could say mostly for family-owned businesses. But my wife Roz and I, um, you know, we met in junior achievement back, uh, you know, just out of high school, and and we had always talked about someday owning our own business. So in 2014, um, we we got together and bought uh, Mrs. Dunster's. Uh, commercial bakery and uh, and we're now co-CEOs and co-owners of, of that business. Um, so that's kind of been our journey, mostly family-owned regional businesses with the, the exception of the, the international stint with McCain, which was it kind of felt regional because we were in emerging markets trying to, to do more local feeling kind of things that's developed. Mm -hmm. Well, certainly a passion for the food sector and bringing a lot of experience into Mrs. Dunster's. And Mrs. Dunster's is a great company. It's got a really interesting long background as well. Maybe introduce us to the company and uh, what it's doing today. Sure. So Mrs. Dunster's, she was a real person. So Ingrid Dunster, she started making donuts in her kitchen in a cast iron pot uh, 50 years ago. And, uh, and, you know, using her grandmother's recipe, uh, frying donuts and lard and, uh, you know, the way your grandmother would have done it. Sort of a fan or neighborhood favorite, I should say. And then the neighbors convinced her to put a stand at the end of the driveway and that was successful uh, with her fresh donuts. And then her husband had a bread route back in the days when, you know, you could go talk to a store manager and get listed in their store. Uh, and, and so he started taking donuts around to grocery stores in, in New Brunswick and then eventually in, in the state of Maine and in Nova Scotia and Prince Edward Island. And so, you know, if we fast forward uh, 50 years, we, we're now the fastest growing uh, and the largest family owned and operated independent bakery uh, in Atlantic Canada. And we bake everything you'd imagine a bakery would make except for flatbreads and bagels. And I always say we have friends who make those. So if you want them, we can help you out. But we probably make about 600 different things and we deliver a lot of those things to uh, grocery stores in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, state of Maine, fresh twice a week. So we're a fresh direct-to-store delivery, uh, regional bakery focused in the North Atlantic. A company with tremendous history, but certainly um, well-placed in the medium to large size uh, companies right now are in the food space out there 
pretty powerful organization, but I think as we'll, as we'll learn as we go forward, there are much larger and more powerful organizations out there and it makes for interesting uh, sort of business situation. But um, let, let's think more about you know, sort of internally for your product or what you're managing there. Um, and one of the factors we think about a lot in these days is sustainability in supply chain. And you're a large regional business. And how is the current situation with supply chain impacting you? And how are you sort of managing through some of those challenges? Well, I mean, that's a good question. I've been in the food business for 30 years and I've never seen a year like this. Uh, you know, it's, you know, we recently landed a pretty significant opportunity to expand uh, our, our, our distribution to uh, other, other regions of the country. And we couldn't do it because we couldn't find packaging to put our donuts in. I mean, never in my career have I had that, that issue. We've had ingredient shortages because ingredient suppliers couldn't find boxes to put ingredients in. Like it's, it's just uh, incredible that the impact that we're having, we've had to buy our, our own tractor trailer. So we, we, cause we couldn't depend on uh, reliable service from third party uh, logistics companies because they're having a hard time finding people and dispatchers and so on. And, uh, you know, last year we opened a brand new 40,000 square foot uh, fresh bread and roll uh, facility in, in Moncton, New Brunswick. A lot of the challenges you would expect opening a bakery uh, of that magnitude, you know, were amplified during COVID because we couldn't get parts and people. And, you know, there's always a normal sort of learning curve in opening a new facility. And that learning curve was probably, you know, doubled or tripled in terms of the timeline. Um, because of the challenges, you know, related to supply chain issues for not just for equipment and parts, but, you know, also just getting technicians here from Italy or wherever, you know. So it's certainly unprecedented times as, as it relates to that. And, you know, with the, the other side of it, I guess, is the impact of that on the supply chain with commodity price increases. So our cost of goods this year going to be somewhere around a million dollars more than last year uh, on the same volume. It, hmm. Everything's up. All of our input costs are up. You know, flour, sugar, lard, oils, um, you know, salt, you know, you mm-hmm. name it. Packaging certainly it is definitely um, a challenging time to be in the food business. Yeah. I want to explore more around this supply chain questions, but you know, it strikes me that, you know, Everybody in the world, especially in North America, since this is where we see most of our news, where, where I'm based and you're based in Canada, we hear a lot about food price inflation, etc. But, you know, they tend to be headlines. You're right in the middle of this. You are a significant producer of food products. What's your view of what's driving the cost increases for, for the food materials? Let's talk about packaging separately. I think that's a more global situation, but what do you see as really driving costs up for you know, raw materials? And for you, that's like you said, flours, oils, lard, et cetera. Yeah, so that's a that's a global issue too, Chris. You know, like essentially, I think what's happening is there's been, you know, we, we went through this period probably around 2008 or so as well. If you remember um, the, the biofuels portion, mm-hmm corn and ethanol and that whole conversation, which drove up the, the value of the corn and ethanol, which drove up, you know, which caused farmers to, to leave other crops and plant those crops, which drove up the price of things like flour and other things. Well, those same dynamics are unfolding today. The difference is, is that I think China is driving the demand for a lot of those 
uh, for corn and for other things. And then at the same dynamics and farmers migrate into things they can make the most money on. And, and then that's causing, causing, you know, other things to go up. So, you know, corn goes up then oil goes up. If oil goes up, lard goes up. If lard goes up, flour goes up because there's less flour planted um, because they're converting those crops over to other things. And, and so you start to get the spin off uh, of that, you know, through the entire supply chain. And that just drives that inflationary um, pressures. On top of that, we had a pretty poor crop on, on wheat and in, uh, globally um, this year. So that, you know, I think flour's up 40%. So there was already pressure from, you know, the, the pressure on the farmers to grow more profitable crops. But on top of that, you had a poor crop on some of the things that were planted. So that just amplified the impact. The other thing that's kind of unique is, so it's, it's, you know, you always have one or two of those things, but have all of those things happening at the same time. You know, that's a rough go. And now what you have on the other side is you have uh, tremendous inflationary pressure on labor and uh, the labor shortage, which is a combination of an aging population in North America and uh, pretty tight immigration policies, I think, in, especially in the U.S. And in Canada, you know, a lack of immigration or a pause in immigration um, due to COVID. And, uh, you know, we have more generous uh, immigration policies, but during COVID, a lot of those were paused. So, so you have older population that the baby boomers are retiring. The, there's not enough young people coming up to take the jobs. We've stopped immigration from coming in and, uh, or at least slowed it down. And that is putting, you know, just this general pressure on, on wages to go up as well. And, you know, and, and we haven't had, and wages haven't kept up with inflation. So you know, put that all in a big bucket together and you get this, this tremendous inflationary pressure on, on food costs that's going to happen here is, People are going to have to get, if we want to pay people fair wages for the work and have a living wage for people, you know, globally, and we think about that in the context of food from everybody who's picking, you know, the vegetables and the fruits and, you know, harvesting the wheat and those kinds of things right through to the people in the facilities, the bakers that are baking it and the packers that are packing it and the people that are delivering it, the stores that are selling it, the workers there, then people are going to have to get used to paying a lot more for their food because it's uh, that's the trade-off right at the end of the day is if that that's where we're going here in north america and and there's only so much you can do with automation and and uh, those kinds of things and if we if we don't figure it out the challenge is that the big guys will just keep getting bigger because the people with the most automation will have the best cost structure and you know making you making you can make a lot of food very fast and very cheap um, but if you want to make yummy food that takes time and it takes labor. So at the end of the day, you know, we have to be careful to to provide a balance for the small and mid-sized food operators uh, that have to compete with the big guys that are just investing more and more and more in automation because of, of the labor market and the challenges associated with that and the accelerated payback they get from automation because the cost of labor is. So it, it's going to further divide the small guys from the big guys, I think. Well, I think these days in social media and Twitter and that type of thing, a lot of people are always looking for what's the short phrase answer to my problem of why my coffee costs more. And you make a good point, and I think certainly more most informed points that can be made um, since you're in the middle of the business that you know the food supply chain is a very very complex global system, and it's really all these things happening at the same time. And not just from a new person in the space, but somebody who's been in the space for decades um, and has been through similar changes, but uh, really is unprecedented. And 
is having people really look at where food is coming from. You know, we see a lot more interest these days in local supply and people buying locally. Um, there's all sorts of reasons behind that, whether it's food freshness, you know, just supporting local economy, etc. But maybe let's look at this from a point of view of supply chain stability. And I, I think, again, a perfect representation of this, you run a pretty large size company, you're buying materials from around the world, but also, for example, flour from probably from across North America. How do you see um, food supply chain stability um, in the upcoming years? And how might say local sourcing or regional sourcing impact that in a good or bad way? That's that's a lot to unpack in that question. I, I think I've been around long enough to kind of have a bit of a perspective on it. And one of the things I didn't mention at the beginning is we run a, a food market as well. So it's a small independent sort of country market. We have a butcher shop and a bakery and produce. And and so it's and, and we pride ourselves on having more locally sourced things there than, than any other grocery store in, in the region. So we have a perspective on this that is, I think, a bit unique. And we also try to bring in, you know, as much local stuff as we can on the bakery side. And and so I think that, you know, you got to kind of understand the history of the food business and the supply chain over the years that, you know, back when I was talking about when Mrs. Dunster started and her husband would take, you know, donuts around to the stores, store managers were making decisions and there was wholesalers in regional parts of the country that everybody would sell to a wholesaler and the wholesaler would buy from the local farmers and buy from the local bakers and buy from whatever, and they would distribute those to, you know, 50, 100, 200 stores in the region. And that disappeared and was replaced with distribution centers for the major retail chains. So we took out that wholesale cost structure um, so they, you know, so they could be more efficient. But at the same time, what we did is we passed on the burden of sourcing onto these retailers. And then we had a tremendous amount of retail consolidation. So now you've got a situation where, you know, you have one buyer in, for the country, you know, for a category. So if you're the guy buying carrots for, you know, the biggest chain in Canada or the U.S., you want to deal with a thousand farmers across the country to buy carrots? Or do you want to find one or two that are going to supply all your carrots, right? Mm -hmm. but what we've done over the years is we migrated to this centralization of, of supply. You know, and during COVID, that was highlighted um, because a lot of these guys couldn't supply. You know, we had one um, beef producing facility in Canada supplied a third of the beef consumed in the country, one plant, mm -hmm. and they had to shut down because of COVID. Mm -hmm. And so there were shortages, you know, but in like our little country market didn't have any shortages because we were sourcing all locally. And in our part of the world, which I don't think, you know, Atlantic Canada, which I don't think is different than other rural parts of North America, wherever you are, um, you know, our grandparents used to, you know, in their age, 70 or 80 percent of the food that was consumed in, in the household was sourced, you know, within a few hundred miles of, of the house. Today, that number is like five or six percent. So we've become over-dependent on, you know, big suppliers that make a lot of things, um, you know, to supply our food need. And I think what's happening now is, A, and, and part of that was driven by necessity. Like I said, if you're the buyer who's buying carrots for thousand mm -hmm. stores, how many carrot farmers can you deal with? Like you buy one guy in California that can grow all your carrots, that makes your life a lot easier, doesn't it? So, so we've all migrated to that model. I think what's happening now is these retailers are starting, and, and it's not just retailers, food service is the same thing, on, on the distribution and control of distribution. So I think what they're starting to realize now is maybe strategically they're overly dependent 
on one or two big guys who can't guarantee consistent supply at a reasonable price like they used to be able to. Mm -hmm. And so now they're starting to go, wow, wait a minute. Well, let me go find somebody else. And there's nobody else because they put all those people out of business or they bought them all. And, and the retailers haven't cultivated that that mid-range sort of supplier base as much as maybe they, they could have or should have. So, you know, so to me, you know, we need more small guys to become, we need more small guys. We need more small guys and girls to be mid-size, you know, companies. And we need more mid-size companies to be developed into large companies and then more large companies to become sort of these titans. We can't have a food supply where all of the food is supplied by the titans mm -hmm. <laughs> because, you know, that's what happens. A plant closes down or a facility closes down or something goes wrong and a third of the beef supply disappears overnight or, or problems like that. And I would say this year there's been unprecedented in the shortages in the, in the food industry in North America um, because of that model and the evolution towards mm -hmm. a handful of food companies supplying all the food. Yeah, and kind of going back to the topic of complex systems in, in the food supply chain, it brings a, out the tech nerd in me a little bit. And it, there's all sorts of complex systems out there, whether that's your computer chip or manufacturing systems or the food system. And I look back and I see trends in manufacturing, computer production, computer networks even. We often see a trend towards centralization because it's you can do things faster and cheaper. Um, and with, you know, frankly, with a little bit less effort, less complexity, you can do things faster and cheaper with massive centralization. But then something breaks and people realize, wow, yeah, we can do it faster and cheaper, but it's fragile. At least this is my theory. <laughs> that then spurs the, um, the race to decentralization, I would say. And we saw that in manufacturing in the in the 90s, I would say, where everything had to become cellular manufacturing. And, and I was in the middle of that, so I know about it. Um, computer chips these days, instead of having one massive processor, we're seeing multiple processors on a chip. And it sounds like what we're describing and what you're describing in the food supply chain space is probably going down that path as well. We've seen that the system breaks relatively easy. Um, when everything is, not everything, but when there's too much centralization. But now we also have the technology that enables us to more effectively manage, more frankly, more cheaply manage decentralized systems where maybe instead of getting flour from five suppliers, you might be getting flour from 50 suppliers. And it's just as easy because somebody provides essentially the IT solution to do that for you. Whereas before it's like, forget it. I'm not, like you said, it's the carrot buyer. You, you want to buy from a thousand or do you want to buy from five? But if it was as easy to buy from a thousand, maybe they would. I'm curious, how do you see that possibly progressing in terms of enabling more local consumption, but also frankly, enabling these smaller producers to compete with the massive you know, scale of buyers that can control markets out there? Yeah. So I, I would like to say, you know, people are going to do the right thing and buyers, you know, the truth is that economics drive everything. Mm -hmm. Right. And and so, you know, there, there are people out there that do things for the right reasons. But for the most part, you know, it, it, if it's harder for them, they're less likely to do it. If they can make more money doing it one way, that's that drives behavior. Right. Unfortunately. Um, or fortunately, I guess, depending on where you are. But I think your idea is an interesting one in, in terms of, of how you, you laid it out there in terms of software and ability management. That's that's certainly a context that 
I think is interesting. But what's going to drive it is necessity. Mm-hmm. And and because so so just because the software was there, in other words, and I can now get carrots from fifty, it's still easier for me to do it with one. I'm not right. going to bother. But if I have no choice, <laughs> and mm-hmm. that software is there, then I can lean into that and I can facilitate it, and make my life easier. And then it's going to be harder for me to go back. But if we were to back up for a minute and say, why do I have no choice? Uh, you know, is is a couple of things in the food business. So food manufacturing is very capital intensive. And, you know, automation and labor we talked about and to drive towards that requires a lot of capital. So that requires a lot of investors, which requires bigger companies, which focuses on which focus on bottom line results, period. And so when COVID hit and these shortages were happening, what happened with the big guys who are focused on their bottom line? They prioritized the customers that they made the most money on, not necessarily the customers. You know, there was no community in, mm-hmm. in those decisions. You know, we had the big guys in our industry cutting off jails and hospitals because that's government mm-hmm. RFP business and it's the lowest margin stuff. And mm-hmm. it's like, those are the most vulnerable people in our community. And so, so all of a sudden the people that were doing that buying are saying, well, we used to go with the smallest price, but now maybe we need to think about who we want to do business with. Because if I'm buying for a hospital five years ago, it's okay, who, who's going to give me the, the best price on white bread? But if I'm buying for a hospital today, it's like, who's going to be able to make sure I never run out of weight? Mm-hmm. The decision's different. And if I have to buy from five different people to do that and their software, as you point out, to do it, now all of a sudden, you know, the motivation is there to change. The other thing that's changed is um, is logistics. You know, we have 125,000 truck drivers shortage in North America. 125,000 truck drivers, that's the gap. You know, we saw in, in in England where they they mobilized the army, you know, to drive trucks to deliver fuel to gas stations. So now, if you have one plant in Western Canada supplying all the beef for Canada, and you have no truck drivers, mm-hmm. that doesn't help you, right? That's mm-hmm. there's no purpose. So that's going to force people to again look at well, what are my local options, and maybe I have to maybe I have to deal with 50 carrot guys instead of one carrot guy because. I need to to be able to get that product here efficiently as well, and I can't depend on if I even if I can depend on the farmer in in California to to ship me all the carrots she can grow, I, I can't necessarily get them here. So mm-hmm. so I think those two things are going to change behavior, and then the things that you talked about, the software and other things are are going to facilitate. Um, the need for change. It's going to drive demand for those kinds of solutions. Absolutely. Well, I think I, I've been around in the in the workspace and the world long enough also to have some of my blind optimism beaten out of me that uh, people are going to do the right thing. I, I still have that optimism. But the re- like you said, the reality is the majority of people, you know, just because of needs are going to do the most efficient thing for them and their business. But I feel like to some extent that may also, there's, it seems to be a shift and uh, it's always with the younger generations. Um, and it's it's sometimes hard to say, is this, is it real or is it marketing? But there's definitely seems to be an interest in local sourcing and sustainability. I still hear producers saying that if we're talking about food, you know, the two key buying factors are cost and taste, you know, that's driving it, but you know, consumer purchasing decisions based on sustainability, based on where products coming from, um, based on the conditions that they perceive in the supply chain of those products seems to be a significant influence. I'm curious, you know, you have a very traditional business. um, I would say from a North American point of view, one of the more most, it's hard to be more traditional than producing bread. 
I would say, even with the innovations that you have um, in, in your products. How do you see if any um, sort of ch change in consumer activities based on, is there really an interest in sustainability? Is there an interest in you know where food is coming from? What are the reactions of your customers? Well, there's no question. I mean, our our and, and you do start seeing it reflected in the trade. You know, our our phones have never been busier with retailers and and uh, and you know food service folks to some degree, restaurants and others calling us. Um, you know, trying to buy local uh, because their customers want it to some degree, but also for the reasons I mentioned, they're disillusioned with with the big folks who suddenly. Um, you know, are demanding higher higher costs than maybe they need to, and are are having a hard time supplying. And and so yes, so there is a general movement in that direction. It's slow, but one of the challenges we have is we've allowed the big guys to get bigger and the small guys get smaller. So so the big sort of category owners, you know, have a lot of contractual uh, arrangements with big retail accounts to get some of them guaranteed market share within a retailer, guaranteed shelf space. So it's great to have local, but uh, but if you only have four feet of shelf space and the other guy has 144 feet of shelf space, you're still going to struggle as a local vendor to sort of grow and, and get a little bit bigger and, and have more of an impact in your region. So, uh, you know, I'm optimistic that those things are going to change. I would say most of the retailers we deal with today have a local supplier strategy, um, which is a focused effort. But... Here's the problem. If you look at it from a just, I mentioned the distribution model earlier, where we're going to a distribution center now instead of a wholesaler, and the distribution center is then shipping to the stores. And and so you know we work with a lot of these folks, and we met, we do a lot of mentoring with small and mid-sized food companies too, and we understand the challenges that they're facing in this. And what happens is so now they got to get a, a slot in the store, but they also got to get a slot in the distribution center. And they don't have enough movement because they don't have enough space in the store. They don't have enough movement in the distribution center to make that kind of efficient. So they get lost in that system and mm. their product doesn't get shipped to the store. Like to have half a pallet in a distribution center that has, you know, 3000 pallet positions in it is mm. not an ideal distribution method. Right. Well, so we've eliminated those enablers in the food chain that allow small and mid-sized people to grow. So we need to change the systems in these stores to, to is going back to your software solution. Well, what's the logistics solution that kind right. of mirrors that? How do we make it easy for 50 people to go through, a, 50 small vendors to go through a, a distribution center and make it to store and get it on the shelf as easy as it is for, you know, one of the big guys to ship 500 pallets of, you know, soup cans or something, you know, we, we have to figure out. Uh, how to support those small and mid-sized vendors so that we can cultivate them along the way. And mm -hmm. the supply chains have not been built for that. So it'll be interesting to see what solutions come on that side of it, because I think the accounts want to get better at it, but man, it's hard. Like it's really hard for them mm -hmm. even to do the things they want to do in right. that system that favors um, very few vendors um, with high volume items that the system's mm -hmm. built for that. So one of the ways I think that's going to happen and it's going to force that change is the development of small independent retailers. I think you're going to see that come back, you know, mm. instead of a, uh, you know, people racing to build 150,000 square foot stores. I think you're going to see people um, racing to develop a five and 10,000 square foot stores. 
and uh, and local vendors. If we can start to build that local vendor base where we have local independent stores all around, and that gives a place for these local vendors to go and sort of grow from here to here, then the step to go from there to the bigger chains is less of a gap and, and they can do that. And I think consumers like it better. The idea of being able to run into a store and grab a steak and an onion and get back in your car in five minutes mm-hmm. and, and go home is, you know, really appeals to a lot of people. And if it's local, even better. So, so it'll be, so I think a lot of things need to change for us to get there. I think you're right. The youngest generation, uh, our generation, the generation after us seems to get it, but it's not going to be easy to change these, these entrenched systems without mm-hmm. the economic benefit to those, those big guys to do it. And I think the economic benefit is shortage of goods and inflationary pricing. So mm-hmm. this is the best time for us to be having this conversation. Yeah, I, I would tend to bet that the big guys won't be the ones that make the change. They will be the ones that have to catch up to the change. And just because they have these very efficient systems, tons of investment, like you said, in capital infrastructure, and it's uh, it's hard to just break away from that. So I, I, I do suspect that you know, as you're describing, smaller organizations will sort of lead that way. I'm very interested and curious to hear you. You have a firm view, I think, that um, we will start to see more local markets coming up. How do you see that happening with, um, let's say, within the current um, ecosystem of the supply chain? Because we already know supply chains are challenging, costs a lot just to manage that, you know, your incoming products. Do you see that primarily those local markets being supplied by local products? Yeah, I do. And it's because of the generational shift that you talked about in attitudes. I, I mm-hmm. think that, that, you know, people are going to, people are motivated, young people today are motivated to open those kinds of places and support local farmers and local food manufacturers. And, and they're not motivated to own a thousand stores. They're happy to own one or two. And so, you know, so I think, you know, you start to see it, you know, if you look around, um, you know, my part of the world, there's, there's, you know, it's not a ton of them, but there's a lot more than there were 10 years ago and five years ago. Um, I think in rural communities, they've been doing this for a long time. You know, mm-hmm. look at Maine. Maine has probably uh, a lot more independence. You know, as you go south towards Boston, you know, mm-hmm. there's fewer and fewer and fewer of them as you get into the big centers where they open the big grocery stores and the 150,000 square foot places. But but in rural areas, which is both, you know, where, where local supply is still important, right. uh, you see a lot of this. So I think you'll start to see people opening, and then I think eventually you'll start to see consolidation, mm-hmm. and then you, we will see chains of independent retailers of you know 10,000 square foot or less stores, you know, over time, and yeah. uh, and it'll be driven that way. It'll be. You know, somebody like you or me or somebody opens up a small one, they start doing something, then maybe a second one, and then they struggle to get efficiencies in that. And if there's a guy across the street and a lady down the road who each did the same thing, so they all get together and, and now you got six. And, you know, so I think, you know, I think that'll happen. It'll it'll be full circle um, to, you know, two or three generations ago, which is where how all these chains started. They all started as... You know, every every grocery chain in North America has the story of the founder up on the wall, you know, with the cart and the hat and the apron, you know, that started with, yeah. you know, an immigrant that came from somewhere that worked his butt off or her butt off and, and, and you know, kind of managed their way and then, you know, grew from there. And now look at us, we have 10,000 stores. And so I think we're going to see that cycle start over again. Yeah, and I, I think there'll be the 
the realization that if you have good local supply networks, that system actually is more cost effective than those that depend on warehouses. There is zero value in holding a product in a warehouse. This was figured out in the traditional manufacturing world a couple decades ago where everything became you know, short supply chains, Kanbans, these types of things. But also the capability of local logistics seems much improved also with, for example, Uber sets a great example here of moving people around. That Uber has since evolved into, it's not Uber itself necessarily, although they also deliver food, but that model has been realized as one that can also move products around. You know, Amazon is leading that, but then that spawns a whole group of delivery companies. And now we're seeing that in food, um, local food suppliers. In fact, I talked to a company a few days ago that takes this to basically the most micro level possible, where they're facilitating markets for people to cook in their home and deliver, and people can pick it up or it gets delivered. So there is essentially no supply chain there other than the person going to the food store and buying what they're producing. And whereas people might have ordered from a, a chain restaurant and they can now order from you know, somebody's kitchen. So all of this stuff is happening. I feel like all of the technology is coming together to help this become possible. And that those shortened supply chains, I, I think they're going to facilitate what you're talking about. But also when you don't need your food to sit in a warehouse possibly anywhere from one day to three weeks, Maybe there's less need for all the preservatives to uh, that really detract from the the taste and quality of the product. So you know you're absolutely right. So shelf life is 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 interesting because you know the way the bakery business evolved in terms of direct to store delivery as an option was because of shelf life. You couldn't leverage the supply distribution system of of even wholesalers because mm-hmm. you had five or, you know, when I was in the bread business in, in 1991, the shelf life on, on bread was five to seven days. So you had to get really good at local delivery and getting it made locally and getting it out and getting it back. And so, you know, that's how it grew. And, and, and today, you know, the big bread companies have like a 30 day shelf life on bread. Mm. Like, so how does that happen? Like, <laughs> why are we asking those questions? So you're absolutely right. If we can get the supply chain down back sort of full circle to where it was, then we can get less things in in the products that we're eating that that have a shorter shelf life and we become efficient at it. And and I think, you know, one of the things that we we need to remember is, you know, the the worst three words in the retail business are out of stock, right? Like Mm. out of stocks are evil. And um, and so when that happens, you know, rightfully so, I think that means consumers, you know, can't get what they want and and everybody in the reacts to that. Right. And so it doesn't matter anymore if you're the, the, the biggest person making the most things at the best if you're out of stock all the time. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. And why are you out of stock? Well, you know, if you're making 10,000 loaves of bread an hour. And you're shut down for 10 hours because employees didn't show up or machines break down, then you're shorting a hundred thousand loaves of bread. Like the implications of being shut down for an hour, if you're this massive super factory making beef or whatever, um, you know, is, is significant in terms of the impact on the supply chain and the out of stock. Mm-hmm. And then if you, and, and then on top of that, if the truck doesn't show up or shows up three hours late, and you can't make it for the delivery time to the deliver to the stores, then you're out of stock. And that 
So, you know, these, these things are demonstrate the value of a local supply chain. When they work well, they work really, really well, right? And for years, they work well. Um, but now they're not working so well. And people are going to go, well, wait a minute. Uh, yeah, it might be a little bit more to buy that locally, but I can, they'll, they'll, I know the person, I know the family that's running that business. I know I, who I can call if there's a problem. I know they'll, if worse comes to worse, they'll throw it in the back of their, the trunk of their car and drive it to my store. Like, you know, and those kinds, that has changed the value proposition of the relationship. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I think that's just going to continue to amplify as we continue to have out of stocks. And there's another factor I think we're seeing in this um, as related to supply chain and what is actually in the food we're eating, which is um, often called transparency. You know, what, what's, what's in the product I'm eating um, where people are much more often or much more commonly looking at labels on food, what's really in there being critical of that, not wanting chemicals in there. Um, but also, you're wanting to know the story, even of where it came from. Um, I, I see this frequently with, you know, coffee and chocolate. Um, I actually have seen a, a, micro, a craft brewery here in Alberta that puts a QR code on their product so you can see where the grains came from and tell a story about that. What's your view on, I guess, the importance or the potential importance of supply chain transparency, certainly to you, but maybe to consumers? They want to know when they're eating a quality loaf of bread, or do they want to know when they're eating a quality loaf of bread? What's really in here? Where did it come from? Yeah, I think I think there is a segment of the population that walks the talk. What I struggle with, you know, as a local producer and, and you know, somebody's in the food business locally in a number of different areas is is I don't see that reflected in the purchase behavior. So mm-hmm. people, you know, you go on Facebook and you see all these comments and local and this and rah, rah, rah. And, you know, all my friends, please buy local. And then you see them in the grocery store and you see what's in their grocery cart. Or you right. see the Amazon boxes stacked outside their front door. You know, really? You know? Um, and and so I think they're, we're a lot better than we were. I have a lot of faith in in the in younger people today to do it in, in terms of walking the talk. But I think we have a long way to go to changing our behavior as consumers to reflect um, the, the, the things that we say and the things we want and, and things we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And, and hopefully, like I said, this issue of, you know, supply chain issues with container ships coming out of China. Maybe if we can't buy stuff from China for a while, that'll force people to go buy, you know, a nice handcrafted ceramic mug from the lady up the street. Right. And, and, and maybe that's where we'll go from now on, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think, but we need something like that to, to just to have a tectonic shift in, in behavior because people aren't walking the talk on this. And, yeah. and uh, there is a shift that's getting better. And, and, but I still only have four feet of shelf space in a store and my competitor has 144. So, mm-hmm. you know, so it's not, and, 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 and honestly, the retailers aren't going to give me 144 unless there's a demand for it. Right? right. So, so you need, you know, you need to buy that, People need to change their behaviors, and they need we need to get it get people to mm-hmm. really embrace this in a meaningful way and understand that yeah it might cost you know I'll post something sometimes you know on one of our our social media things about you know or somebody will post and you know even on our own page we'll post mm-hmm. something about the product and somebody else will say yeah you can get that cheaper at this big box store you can get that cheaper you know and you're like really 
and this is yes. the same person who yesterday said, you know, buy local. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And we got to change that. This is certainly an incremental change. Um, it, I think part of the reason we're talking about it is that incremental change has gotten to a point where it's getting attention and, and not just in a podcast like this, but it's getting global attention of people's interests shifting. Would also, I feel like there's two key factors, maybe certainly more, but two key factors that maybe are not perfectly facilitating this so far. One is frankly, this trans, um, transparency, it's hard. You know, it's hard to get there. If somebody came to a food producer and said, hey, here's this system, you know, it, it's very affordable. It's going to improve your, you know, customer retention because they're going to have transparency on what you're, on your amazing product because you should be telling people what's in that product. I think that is a bit of a barrier because food companies are not tech companies. They, they don't invent tech to do this. They need the tech companies to come in and provide that solution packaged up, ready to go, not hire a dev team to build it. The other thing, frankly, is trust. Transparency without trust is totally useless. Um, and that trust, I, I've heard this word a lot, talking with entrepreneurs, comes often from authenticity. And do all the social media you want, but you know they want to see Blair's face talking about something because when they see him talk, they know he's the face of the business and they know he's um, genuine about what he's doing. So that heavy lifting on the tech side probably needs to be greatly reduced. And then there needs that trust needs to come in. And I think the trans those two build off of each other. I would say this there's also probably going to be a very interesting uh, knock-on effect from that, which is companies that want that transparency and get it out there and they're retaining customers for it, I suspect they're going to start crushing the compet competition that really doesn't want that transparency. They really don't want you to know what's in their product. I'm, I'm curious of your reaction to that point of view. Well, I, I think there is absolutely more um, capability and capacity and knowledge and intelligence around um, people today asking questions, you know, about what goes in their food, where their food's made, how their food's made. And, you know, I recently saw a, a presentation by um, Zita Cobb, who, who runs Fogo Island in Newfoundland. And, and you know, her sort of big t-shirt moment at the end is it, it matters who owns what, you know. Mm. And it's this whole community-based, uh, you know, approach and the things that she's done in, in Fogo Island and in Newfoundland Labrador around local community and tying, you know, everything together. And it, it matters who owns what. And I think that, that that's certainly... Uh, people are more equipped today to dig into that and do their own research and understand and call bullshit on on folks that don't live up to those ideals mm -hmm. than ever uh, with the amount of information that's available. But I think there's a couple of other connotations to what you said. And and I think as, as entrepreneurs who are in this space that are local, that are trying to, to do more locally, I think um, there's a couple of things where we can really excel at you know, doing a better job. And one of them is storytelling. You know, we, you know, authentic storytelling. Um, generally speaking, we do a poor job of that in this, you know, as, as small and mid-sized food companies, but it's really, really important. People want to know the stories more than ever. And we often say at Mrs. Dunster's, the best thing about working here is when you tell somebody you work here, they get a big smile on their face and they tell you a story, you know, about growing up and this and that. And, and so we've, got appreciation for storytelling and i think we're pretty good at it in terms of, of telling our story so that's well one maybe piece of advice for um for smaller food companies out there the other one is that the big guys have never and i've been in the corporate world and i've worked for big companies and in the industry 
And and one of the things that they often forget, you know, I was leading brand teams and I would say, well, don't ever forget we're in the yummy food business because the bigger you get, you get talking about shipping cases and truckloads, operational efficiencies and 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 it's like it, it whatever you're making just becomes sort of widgets, right? Even the photography reflects like it terrible and and you get all of these ingrained habits where where people think they're in the business of shipping cases when really the small folks that they do the job right and they tie it to the to the storytelling then you know you can really tell the story about yummy food mm-hmm. and people want to buy yummy food and that's part of what you're what makes yummy food well it's safe you know it has wholesome ingredients in it it has local ingredients in it um you know you're employing local local people selling it and it tastes great and so that's an area i don't think the larger corporate food folks will ever be good at mm. because there's just too much structure in right. in those organizations to really have a deep love and appreciation for that the way an entrepreneur or an owner or operator will talk about their product right. will always be different because they're not going to hire an outside agency to tell them what their story is about their product they they just know what it is because they put their exactly. whole into it right right and so um so i think those those things come together well, we've gone through a tremendous amount of really interesting information and perspective it's uh, certainly driving the future of food um and sustainability and stability in supply chains maybe as a last point for us to go through in this podcast I want to hear uh, a little bit about your growth plans and especially how you're bringing yummy food beyond maybe your traditional regions um and across North America. Well, uh, oh thanks. So, I mean, our we have I guess in support of everything we said here about, you know, trends and so on, you know, we we have grown probably an average of 30 to 35% a year since we since we bought this business and we've had tremendous support in our backyard which is the Maritimes in Maine. Um we have uh, a lot of interest um for Mrs. Dunsters. You know, it's funny when I bought the business and I asked them about oh well maybe we should, you know, where would you grow? Where would you focus? And and he said honestly, he said I would just keep focusing in our own backyard. I think there's lots of opportunities here and then when you max that out, you know, you can start looking, you know, nationally and in other places and and that was seven and a half years ago and we're still growing <laughs> next year we'll grow 50%. Hmm. Uh, our sales pipeline today is four times larger than the size of our company. So oh. I don't know how we're going to do that, but you know, we have a lot of interest from people who say in our backyard which I guess will probably extend to New England and uh, from just Maine and uh in Atlantic Canada and and so so for us you know i guess the message is even if you're in a small part of the world you know there is still lots of opportunity in in your own backyard and it's easy to be easier to be a big fish in a small pond sometimes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so as we continue to grow um and focus on that we make fresh products so we can only go so far right, right? and uh and so i'm always amazed at the opportunities that are coming our way and continue to come our way and and this has really been amplified greatly like we've always had opportunities but we never had a sales funnel like we have now mm. and what's driving that boys out there are are not doing a good job and mm. surprising people and they're reassessing their priorities so So we're going to grow, we're going to be 50% bigger next year. I I don't know where and how that stops. We're really not focused on growing for the sake of growing. We're just kind of following our nose and 
trying to do right by our customers and trying to make decisions that will make our communities better by virtue of those customers we choose to do business with. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, we'll see where it goes, but, uh, well, you know, it's just great. That sounds like a true pathway to sustainable growth. Um, like you said, not to, uh, make numbers and, and get your bonus for some artificially inflated, um, profit numbers, but to maximize, you know, sustainability and community grow will organically and uh, just be healthy about that. So really appreciate your business doing that and hope it's a good example for others. Thank you. I appreciate you um, expressing an interest in our business and, and letting us tell our story a bit. Thank you. Excellent. Well, thanks again for being with us on the show today, Blair. Um, Mrs. Dunster's amazing baked products. Um, if you're ever in the Atlantic Eastern Canada, Northeastern US, um, yes. Mrs. Dunster's, I'm looking forward to it. Get my sweet tooth back on some of those cinnamon rolls. <laughs> we make an awesome cinnamon roll. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening to Future Foodcast. Future Foodcast is powered by Farm to Plate, the leading food blockchain platform. Subscribe on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date with the very latest innovations in the food industry. 